Thank you to Megan and Sarah, and uh, I do thank you also as well just for the opportunity that you gave to these women to go and to spend uh, 11 days um, in Romania, and I hope and pray that you all give Megan that opportunity again in about 10 years. I think that would be great. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was a wonderful 11 days with our four kids. It was a real blessing. Uh, and... Um, and I also want to thank the middle school uh, worship team again. You know, one of the things that we talk about, one of the values that we have here at ZPC uh, is our covenant children. And one of the things that that means is not just that we look at them and we smile at them. It is that we allow them to participate and even more so to lead us. And so I am deeply appreciative of you all who helped to lead us uh, this morning in worship. And I want you to know uh, how much or how important that is to us as a body. Well, when I heard that Sarah and Megan were going to be up here talking, I realized that I was going to need to shorten my sermon by 10 minutes or so. And um, that's just a joke. Um, not, not really. But, um, but uh, so we are looking this morning at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. And so I invite you uh, on this side uh, to hear these words, and on this side, if you want to also read along, you may. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, but others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven." Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and let's pray. God, we do give you praise for the ways in which just in this worship service we are reminded. We are reminded that you have called our children, to yourself, God. And so we give you praise for them, for the ways that they have led us in worship this morning. We thank you, Lord, that we know that you have called us, not just to the comfortable places nearby, Lord, but to the far away places as well. And so we give you praise for the work that you are doing through this church in Romania. And we pray that you would continue to be with them. And God, we gather together today in worship in order to 
hear from you. And so I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So next week, we are kicking off a a, a series. Our True North series is uh, starting back up again. And so that's happening next week. And also next week, our home groups are beginning. And uh, also next week, as you may have heard, Scott is uh, Scott's beginning to teach a new class uh, for six weeks on um, all the soap operas that he watched when he was on sabbatical. So it's going to be a... um, Just kidding. Uh, He he is, though, teaching a class on his sabbatical, and he's going to be talking about all the things that he learned. And so I would encourage you um, to to think about going to that. It's right after this service. It's going to be at the 1030 service in the chapel, and he's very excited to do that. So just as a one more plug for that, uh, in case you weren't here earlier in the service. Uh, But what that means is that I had a bit more freedom today, just like last week, to kind of preach on whatever it is uh, that I want. Wanted to. And, and last week we looked at Luke 10 and we, we talked about the fact that this is a good measuring tool for asking how are we doing at living into who Jesus says we are, who we are called to be. And we talked about the fact that when the 70 went out that this was a vulnerable act. And that in that vulnerability, oftentimes, when we realize that we are not in control and that we are dependent on God, uh, how much more God can usually do through us. And so we talked, about, we talked about together having one goal, each of you having a goal, but all of us together coming up with one spiritual practice of vulnerability, whether that's going to the great banquet, whether that's being a part of a home group, whether that's being hospitable in your house, whatever it is, as a sign of the reality that the more often we are vulnerable, the more that God can work through us. And so this week, as I was trying to wrestle with what exactly it was that we were going to talk about, I remembered, as Lisa prayed, about the inauguration coming up and realizing, of course, that with that, we have a continued uh, amount of anxiety that seems to pervade our society. And so I was reminded of something that we talk about a fair amount in this past fall, which was the reality that God is in control. And it is so easy for us to forget that. And one of the things that we need to remember, whether you are a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Tory or a Whig or whatever else it may be, that when we get overly optimistic or pessimistic, it may be a clear sign that we have forgotten that God, not any human power, but that God is in control. It's part of the reason why I picked this particular text, because it's a reminder to us that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Savior, that Jesus is the Lord, or as it could be interpreted, that Jesus is King. Now, it's also kind of interesting where exactly this particular passage occurs. It happens in Caesarea Philippi. 
That's, of course, named after two different people. It had just recently been renamed Caesarea Philippi, and Philip, from whom the Philippi came, had named it Caesarea in order to flatter Caesar Augustus, who was the ruler of the world. And so you notice, right, I picture Jesus with a bit of a twinkle in his eye as he decides at that moment, when he's in this place, in this city that is paying homage, to the ruler of the world that he asks, really, who is the true ruler of the world? And again, it is this reminder to us that though we pray for our leaders as we are called to do, that though we pray for them, that though we hope for them, we do all of those things in the light of the reminder that Jesus is in control. All of us from time to time are tempted to forget who is in control, who is the Savior of the world. But one of the other things it seems to me as I was thinking about it this week that we are tempted to do is not just to forget who is in control of the world, but we oftentimes are also tempted to forget who Jesus is. Right? When Jesus comes and he says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? All the names listed are great people. Right? John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. These are all great people. These are all people who pointed to the Savior, who pointed to God. But they aren't enough. What Jesus is trying to say here in the question, is that, is, that, is that he is actually the Savior and the Lord. He's not just someone pointing to the Savior and to the Lord. We are oftentimes tempted, I think, many in our society, including us at times, to want to think about Jesus simply as being a good teacher, as being a mentor, as being an exemplar for who we should be and for how we should live. And while Jesus may certainly be all of those things, we cannot forget that ultimately, most importantly, Jesus is not just a teacher. He's not just a mentor. He is the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the Messiah. He is the King. What that means is not only that God is in control of the world, it means that if Jesus is the Savior, that he longs to be in control of your world. Which is one of the more interesting things that I hadn't thought about when it comes to this passage that was kind of brought to light to me this week. One of the reasons why perhaps we miss it is that the Greek to English translation is not always the best. And, and one of the things that happens is in the English translation, they don't usually ha- you don't usually italicize words. But one of the words in this passage should be italicized. And it's what happens when Jesus asks the disciples, not to who do people say I am, but he says to them, who do you say that I am? But what he really says is who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
And you see what that question does is the question takes it from a kind of a, a theological, a philosophical, a theoretical, an interesting inquiry to a real, intimate, personal question. Who do you say that I am? Over the years, um, I've kind of talked to a lot of folks who have been married, and a lot of them um, um, are, are folks who, who got married when they were younger in life. Uh, I, I think especially probably for a previous generation, there were a lot of people who got married when they were in their early 20s or even late teens, if you will. And, and, and so what's interesting is to talk to those people about 20 or 30 years after they've gotten married and, and when their kids are in their late teens or their early 20s. And almost inevitably, without fail, as we talk about it, what they end up saying is, I can't believe we were that young. What were we thinking? And desperately in that, sometimes explicitly or implicitly, they say, I pray to God every day that my children do not do that. Right? I can't believe we did that. What were we thinking? Right? Even in a good marriage, it, it, it makes people afraid. And, and, and so I think about that. And, and though I did not get married at an at a especially early age at all, I was 32, I think. Um, yes, that's right. I was 32. I, but I do think about some of the things that, 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 that we said fairly quickly to each other, Megan and I. I, I, I realized that Megan and I, with some regularity, actually within, I would say, I think within the first week, we already said, I, I love you to one another. Within the first two or three weeks, we already started talking about marriage. And, and, and as I think about that, and I think about my four girls, and even though the oldest one is only seven, it already makes me incredibly anxious to think about that, right? Whatever you do, don't do something this stupid. Don't tell someone you love them so quickly. Don't start talking about marriage after you've known them for two or three weeks. I'll be playing this for them again and again. But one of the interesting things that Megan is more than happy to share is that while I was more than happy to talk about marriage with her, I was much less interested in actually popping the question to her. You see, I could talk about marrying her till the cows came I mean, we would. We would talk about, well, what kind of house would we live in? And we talk about that. Well, well, where would we live? And, and, and we talk about, well, what, you know, um, what kinds of, what would our, even like boring things, like what would our budget be? And how would we do these things? And we would, we would talk about things like, well, how many children do you want to have? And, and even like, well, how exactly should we discipline those children? I mean, we would have all those conversations. I loved it. I loved talking about it again and again and again. But what I was not willing to do, at least at this point, at that point, was to actually make a change by asking the question. Because I knew as soon as I I said, will you marry me, that everything was actually going to change, that I was no longer going to have some of the freedom that I now had, that it was going to cost me literally and figuratively. I loved to talk about marriage. It was a great 
fun thing to do, but I was very unwilling month after month after month to actually do something that would force things to really change, that would actually mean that we were married. It took month after month after month of talking about it. It took about a year or so and one ultimatum later until finally, I'm not kidding, until finally I decided okay, I'm willing to actually make the change. It seems to me, actually, that when Jesus says, who do you say that I am, what he's really doing, as Peter Marty points out, is he's asking them, are you willing to not just talk about me, but are you willing, and who do you think I really am, and are you finally willing to begin to follow me? You see, it is a massive difference between just being okay talking about Jesus than it is to actually follow him and make him your Savior and your Lord. It is two different things because it is very safe and enjoyable even, and Presbyterians love to talk, to think about Jesus being this object that we can go back and forth talking about. It is a whole different ball game to actually be begin to follow him. And in all honesty, pastors are probably most prone to that temptation because throughout the week and on every Sunday, we are talking and talking and talking about Jesus until we begin to think we're doing something spiritual, even if we aren't actually asking, how am I following Jesus? And is Jesus really my Lord and Savior? Before I came here, I shared this with you all probably before, I was an interim pastor in western Pennsylvania. And one of the things that I loved about being an interim pastor is that you can say whatever you want. I mean, it, it, it is great. Well, about freedom, right? Because, because if you say something that makes people upset... They don't care that much because they're like, well, he's going to be gone in a few months anyway, so why should we even get bothered? So there is this freedom, right, for me to be able to kind of say things, and, and they could say things to me as well and know that I was going to be gone in a few months also. And so, so, so from time to time I would say things that I may not always say in other situations. And so we were, uh, uh, one of the things that I shared with them, I shared it on a Sunday morning, and then even I shared it at a kind of a Lenten lunch that we had with a bunch of different churches and people from different churches. The pastors didn't really enjoy that I did that very much. But I said to them that I had a concern, and that my concern was that we probably have too many Bible classes in our churches, and not surprisingly, they were not very, not very happy that I would say that. But what I said to them, and let me explain so that I don't become an interim here. What I said to them was my concern is that we have too many people who go to this Bible class and then this Bible class and then this Bible class and they think because they are learning about the Bible and that they are learning about Jesus that Jesus has actually become their Savior and their Lord. 
And there are some churches, quite frankly, who measure how well they are doing, how good they are, by how many Bible classes they have, and by how many people they have coming to them. And I am here to say, it doesn't matter whether you have five Bible classes or a hundred. If people aren't actually following the Jesus that they're learning about, then it is all for naught. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach the Bible. And if you go to a church where there is no Bible, well, then you might want to keep moving along. But it is no good for you to have memorized Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and not actually put any of those words to use. That's talking about Jesus, not actually following him. One of the reasons why I mentioned last week that home, being a part of a home group is vulnerable is because the questions that are asked there are not just what do you think about this passage. It is usually what difference does this make in your life? How is this shaping you? How is Jesus shaping you? And sometimes, and this is oftentimes a criticism from the males, and I get it, it can be a bit touchy-feely. But I want you to know, I think it is significant significant that as frequently as possible, we ask the question, not just who do I think Jesus is, but what difference is that making in my life? And if he is the Messiah and the Savior and the King, how am I being changed? And if we aren't asking those questions, then all we're doing is blowing up our brains while not actually changing our hearts. But the reason, of course, that we prefer to talk about Jesus rather than actually following him as Savior and Lord is because it is costly to follow him. It does not cost you a thing to talk about him. And I think that's what we see kind of happening here at the end of this passage. It's a weird kind of ending where Jesus, right after Peter tells him, you are the Messiah, you are the Lord, you are the King, Jesus tells him to do what? He says, don't tell anyone. What a strange thing. Usually we're told to tell everyone, right? So why is it that, that Jesus doesn't want them to tell about who he is? Well, I think we see it because Jesus, or the reason why, because Jesus immediately then, he begins to tell them what, what is going to have to happen to him, about how he is going to suffer, about how he is going to die, about how he is going to be raised up, right? All of a sudden, he begins to tell them that this is what it actually means to be the Savior, and Peter, this is a great scene, a very awkward scene for Peter, but it's a great scene, right? Here's Peter who's feeling really good about himself because he's just been told that the whole church is going to be built upon him. So you can imagine how good he feels. And then Jesus has these silly things to say. And Peter is a good guy. He doesn't want to kind of embarrass Jesus in front of everybody. And so he pulls him aside, we are told. And you just got to get a sense that maybe he tries to whisper something to him. You know, Jesus. Jesus, this is not what's actually going to happen. I don't think you should do this. And then, almost like in a scene, I don't know if you've ever been in a restaurant where a couple's like getting in a loud fight. It's kind of awkward, right? If you're the one who's done it, I want you to know for the other people, it's really awkward. And so, 
So all of a sudden, right, Peter, Peter, you know, Peter says that, and Jesus, probably very loudly, it seems, says, get behind me, Satan, right? And if you're Peter at this point, I mean, you're feeling really weird, right? So you're kind of like, <laughs> he calls me Satan sometimes. <laughs> it's just, he's a jokester, right? No. And what is Jesus trying to do? Jesus is trying to make it very clear that being Savior and King does not mean that you will be full of pomp and circumstance of glitz and glamour, that you will begin to separate yourselves from the commoners, if you will. What it actually means is that you will begin to suffer with them, that it will draw you closer to the people. In other words, that loving the world is always going to be costly. To love those who may not love you back, to go where everyone is, not just where the high and mighty are, is always going to cost you something. And what we have to begin to see is that the reason why Jesus didn't want them to tell about who he was is because they didn't yet understand that. And if they didn't yet understand who it meant that he was, it meant they didn't even understand who they themselves were. Being a follower of Jesus, being the church, did not mean that you were going to get invited to the nice balls and to the dances and to meet famous people. It meant that you were going to get on your knees and begin to serve others. That the call to the kingdom of God is a call to servanthood, not a call to power. Until the disciples understood that, they needed to keep quiet. There's good news, it seems to me, which is that what this passage shows us is that Jesus understands that understanding or learning what it means to follow Jesus is a very long process. I mean, one of the people, right, that we talk about with some regularity, one of the greatest people in the Bible is Peter. Not because he's great, but because he's like me and he's like most of you. That Peter was going to have days when he thought that God was in control, and he was going to have days when he thought that he must be in control. That Peter was going to have times when he just wanted to talk about Jesus, and then there would be times when he would actually follow him. That Peter would have times when he wanted to take the easy road, and then he would have days when he really wanted to follow Jesus wherever it was that Jesus was calling him to go. Sometimes when we think about that line, get thee behind me, Satan, what we fail to see is we focus on the Satan and we forget that Jesus is actually telling him exactly what he's telling all of us, which is that our call is to get behind him. When the church gets in trouble is when they try to get in front of Jesus or even alongside of him. Jesus says, get behind and follow me. What that means, church, is in those moments when we forget who is in control, when we get anxious, get behind him and follow him. 
In those times when we begin to realize that we are talking a lot about Jesus, but we aren't actually making him Lord and Savior, those are the times when we are called to get behind and to follow him. In those moments when we realize that we would rather take the easy route rather than the road that he has called us to take, a road of sacrifice and servanthood, we are called in those moments to get behind and to follow Jesus. There's one simple question today. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? And if he's the Messiah, and if he is the Lord, then get behind him and follow him. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, amidst the anxieties of our time, it is easy for us to forget that you are in control. It is easy for us to forget that you are the Messiah, you are the King. Lord, there are many of us who love to talk about you. And so I pray that this week that you would also help us to examine our own lives and to ask whether or not we are also following you. Help us to not take the safe road, but the road that you have called us to follow. It's in your name we pray. Amen.